The following podcast contains adult language and themes that may be unsuitable for some listeners. You've been warned. People say I should have made it, that I could have dated models and movie stars. Pour yourself a drink, because we're going there. Taboo Topics are back on the table. Hey everybody, I'm LeJohn. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe, and this is the Going There Podcast. Today we're going to talk about show business, Hollywood. We have a really special guest, but first, uh, what would you guys say is kind of your driving ambition behind wanting to get into show business? Mine's a little bit different because I more care to be behind the scenes. You guys have more of the grueling side of it. Trying to be, you know, being actors and comedians and performers it's tough, right? Yeah, I'm trying to chase the dragon, trying to find that feeling, that that high that I first had when I was like in the flow, acting, um, making people laugh on stage. When I first watched I Love Lucy, uh, I was like six, and I was like, I want to do that, exactly that. So I guess I'm just trying to find that. And you probably had some of those special moments that define that passion for you, right? Yeah, like on stage at UCB, there have been shows where just like you have to wait because people are laughing before you can go on. That feels good. That's an ego boost for sure. You know what? For me, it's just um about comfort. There's no other place I feel as comfortable than in front of a camera. I just, it, and it's always been that way for me. Um, As long as I'm being compensated to pay my damn bills. I don't really give a damn. As long as I'm in front of a camera doing what I want to do, I'm happy. And people always counter with, nah, that's bullshit. You want to be the next Denzel, man. You want to be a superstar. And I think that any actor who says they don't want to be a star is a liar. But I've gotten to the point where I'm like, nah, man, I'm just, I'm, I just love saying words in front of a camera, man. And, and I'm going to keep on working hard and busting my ass and everything to, to reach my full potential. Of course. And what happens is going to happen. Um, I always say to myself, there is a role being written right now by somebody who I don't know. That's for me. The janitor starring LeJohn Woods. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, for me, like growing up, I always wanted to be in front of the camera and I still enjoy acting and performing, but it's not like my true passion. It was when I went and saw Jurassic Park, I think. And then I went home and I saw something on like... You like, can I be a dinosaur? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be a T-Rex. No, but I was like, I want to be a filmmaker. You know, I wasn't idolizing the main character as much as I was like idolizing whoever the hell put this together. It's that Steven Spielberg guy, the guy who made Jaws and Indiana Jones and E.T. So I guess what it comes down to is we get to a point in our lives where we have to ask ourselves as adults at least as a kid totally different story sky's the limit you have to ask yourself what am i willing to settle for to say i'm fulfilled and for me i'm happy paying the bills and doing cool stuff in my realm that isn't film isn't cinema as long as i get to play on the side too and even this podcast i think kind of falls into that category i mean yeah i would love to produce a, a blockbuster but I won't die a unhappy man if it doesn't happen. I'm homeless, but I'm so happy. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like as I get older, I see that to be creative and to make money, uh, there's just no, you cannot be purely creative and for that to make money. And if you do, that's very, that's a fluke and you're very lucky. So if I can somehow have 
income in some way where I can fund things, that would be great. I have been in a lot of situations where I've been cast in things and they're like, well, it's no pay, but it's great exposure. And I think that that's a manipulative tactic that people use when they don't want to pay actors. So I'm kind of over that. I just want to make stuff and I want to be happy and I want to not be homeless. (laughs) Give me those words. Give me those lines and allow me to show you so much more than what you wrote. Allow me to show you so much more than what you thought this character could be or was going to be. Let me show you. You you, you saw this character in three different ways. Let me show you nine because I'm able to do that. I'm able to give you that. I just have that kind of passion and desire for it and just the process. And that's what was so important to me. When I fell in love with the process well before getting in front of the camera, I said, oh, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. You got to love the process, I think, as opposed to just the the fame that you think that you'll get yeah and it's work it's, is it it's work. is it about fame though um, I, I, you be well, honest when they, when they try to underpay you that's what they're trying to get you to think it's about but of course it's not because nobody's famous anymore first off i mean it's too easy to get famous these days yeah so you're infamous that, yeah, yeah, yeah that's the thing i i ask all the time who the hell would want to be famous no nah, yeah exactly as an actor as a non-union actor the um, appeal to being famous is probably not the fame so much as the respect that maybe I'll get because I'm famous yeah. because I get so disrespected by casting directors and by producers and just by people just not paying you what you're worth or at all. I would much rather my name carry some weight than my face. People who see you in public have no fucking idea who you are, but they're like, oh, that's a Matt Pilata product. Like, oh man, that guy's good. Yeah, my face carries weight, but it's because I'm bloated. (laughs) I teed that one up. (laughs) Hashtag fat face. Hashtag fat face. So here to talk a little bit about his experiences in Hollywood, somebody who didn't even want to be an actor, who didn't want to be famous. He just couldn't find anything he enjoyed. Um, you may remember him as Mr. Heckles from Friends. You might remember him as the guy who played Kramer inside the show of Seinfeld. You might remember him from Escape from Alcatraz or maybe even Breaking Bad. Mr. Larry Hankin, the man, the myth, the legend, the podcaster. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, I can't even follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to to prepare for t- today's episode, uh, Joe and I and Lindsay last night rewatched Escape from Alcatraz, where you were Charlie Butts. Charlie Butts, yeah, it's it's a, it's a great movie, it really is. It really, and part of it is because Larry Hankins in it. That's why what makes it well, so damn yeah, good. Well, um, I, I got to tell you, it's one of my favorite roles, even though it was one of my early roles. I, I, I just, uh, I guess I was there so long. I was on there for like three months on the island, uh, not during the nighttime, but but every day. So I, I guess I was there so long that any kind of awe about who I was working with, which is Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel, they're both like, no, see, that that's legend, man. <laughs> Don Siegel is a legend. And uh, so I was on this for so long that it, it kind of wore off my my awe. So I, I got to be relaxed. I, I I don't know if I've ever been that relaxed in, in front of a camera. That, that was that was my takeaway from it. So that's why I like it. Relaxed in a prison setting. That's a bold statement. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a feat. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you and I had a conversation beforehand and kind of talking about essentially the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> There's a Clint Eastwood film, right? Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to show business, to Hollywood. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, it's uh, okay. Look, I, I'm not an actor. I'm I'm a I'm a stand-up social anthropologist, is what I really am. Uh, I mean, I be, I did stand up for years. I was very successful at it, and uh, I just lucked into getting into movies. I, I never wanted to be an actor. I, I never dreamed about it or anything like that. I, I want to be a, just a funny guy. That's all, you know. So stand-up, uh, but. So there's two things. One is the the great joy of being an actor is being in front of the camera and doing your thing. But the dance you have to go through to get in front of that lens takes sometimes months, man, but but weeks at least. You're not getting paid. I mean, you're learning lines. You're going to auditions. Sometimes you audition three times for Seinfeld or you audition five times. Uh, and that, that weighs on you if you want the part. You know, you're thinking about it. What can I do better? I mean, what I watched, I guess, a sitcom or another movie that I was in. I'd, I've never done it with Alcatraz, but I could do it with that. And that is I timed how much time I was on the screen in the movie that was released. I timed just that. And probably I was on screen in that movie for maybe three minutes, maybe. That's extent, that's really extended. But the time that I that it took me to get in front of that camera to get those three minutes was like a month. A month of just auditioning and rehearsing and learning and that that's not fun at all. That's a job, man. I, I always equate it to um, like I I'm a former athlete and I used to run track, and I I was a sprinter, so therefore um I would run like a hundred meter dash, and I would sit. One day I said to myself, "Let me get this straight. I'm training hours, days." for a race that's going to last 11 seconds. There you go. <laughs> Yo, just buy a car. <laughs> I mean, exactly, man. So I mathematically worked out how much money I got for that three minutes. Now, probably I got maybe, I don't know, anywhere from 1500 to $5,000 to do a sitcom, depending on if you're you know, an extra, if you're this, you're that. Uh, if you're a star, it's even more. But so those that's the, the, the framing. You know, sometimes $1,500 to $5,000 because I was a beginner and stuff. So, but my time on screen, I was getting like maybe a th $1,000 a second or something like that. It was like ridiculous. In other words, for the salary I was getting for the time on screen. For Breaking Bad in um, the, the Winnebago scene. Yes, I, I was going to crush the Winnebago and they were trapped inside the Winnebago and I was talking to the cop. Uh, okay, that scene, I, I did time that scene. I was in that scene actually for 10 seconds. <laughs> so the amount of money that I got for that 10 seconds, you know, came to be like a million dollars a second or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, something <laughs> ridiculous. And like I say, for for, for 11, an 11 second run, you, you you put in all that time and energy. 
So people from the outside think that it's such a cush job, but all of the work that you have to put in to get those 10 seconds is like 10 yeah, months. Yeah, is is not not worth it to me. Now, now I've watched actors who I think are worth their price in gold. I mean, so it's it's just it's me, it's not the industry because people love doing that. I love being funny, stand-up comedy or, or or making my own little films, you know, that I like. And I then I can put in all the time I want. You know, because I like doing it. But it's not acting. It's it's my thing. You know, it comes out of my head. So there's declinations of yeah, show business and which section you're in and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Going back a little bit into your personal story, uh, you were telling me a little bit about... Oh, we're going to get personal now? Yeah. <laughs> now we're getting personal. Now is when we share our social security numbers. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> so you went to college and you kind of did what you thought that you owed to your parents. Exactly. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Did some research. Yeah. And Yeah. And then... Uh, you know, from there, it was kind of like you didn't want to be an actor. You almost fell into acting. I did. I mean, there's no there's nowhere around it. I mean, I graduated as industrial design, and that was okay. I paid my dues to my parents. Now I was going to do what I wanted to do. General Motors offered me a huge amount of money to design cars of the future when I graduated. So I was going to go to Detroit. My best friend in college was Carl Gottlieb who wrote Jaws and, and, and other movies. Uh, and he said, let's go to Greenwich Village because he wanted to be a writer and he got a job uh, reviewing uh, movies for this very small paper. But he wanted to be a writer, so that was where he wanted to go. So he said, why don't you come with me? We'll go to Greenwich Village and we'll get an apartment together and uh, you can find out what you want to do there. <laughs> I mean, he not care what I did. He just wanted somebody to pay half the rent. I didn't, I wasn't interested in industrial design either. I mean, I, you know, I was like an A student. I mean, I guess when I get into something, I do it. You know, if you put it in front of me, then that's what I concentrate on. It's, Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but when I graduated, uh, Carl Gottlieb sounded like a great offer. I went with Carl and I starved uh, and he was stealing food to, to, to feed me. But I was doing open mic nights. Uh, it's really funny how he was doing that. He would go to these uh, re review movies. And the thing back back then in the 60s, if you were in a local paper or you were with the New York Times, you all went to the same preview to review the same movie. What they do is they give you liquor and they give you food. You know, to kinda... all needed. I guess I do like this movie He's now like, that I'm looking at it. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> week after week, it was always the same thing. It was uh, no matter what uh, studio or whatever, what movie. It was a wine and an open, kind of an open bar, and cocktail shrimp in, in these big bowls. So what he would do is he would take a real napkin, take a handful of uh, shrimp, put it in a napkin, and then put it in his pocket, and he would take it home to me, and that would be my dinner. And Because uh, I was doing open mic nights. I was trying to be a comedian. I, I really wanted to be a comedian. So he, he's watching you eat that shrimp and was like, Jaws. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger boat for this shrimp. Everybody makes that connection. I never did. <laughs> it never occurred to me. But yeah, I don't know. It was a fate. But one day he came home and he said, okay, this is the last one, man. I I'm not doing this anymore. And I go, why, man? 
because my suit, this is the only suit I have, and it's smelling of fish. <laughs> Did he try washing it? <laughs> well, it was one of those, you know, uh, I, I, he only had one suit, but it was expensive. Oh. You know? But, I mean, we were living on the margin, you know, both, you know, because he was paying sometimes two rents, you know, my half and his half. You know, what's crazy is as you're telling the story and I'm thinking, okay, I was waiting to see if you and, and Carl simultaneously got something, but doesn't it seem like there's so many stories where this celebrity or this well-known person for something was college roommates with or lived with somebody and it it just yeah it, Apatow and all his crowd yeah right. yeah yeah it's like you just happened to be roommates with the dude who wrote Jaws and that's crazy and it just seems like like talent is always surrounded by talent whether by accident and other or people have lived with me and become you know <laughs> we're trying to ask if we can move in this that's week yeah, I am looking for a place <laughs> um, well I've noticed that too and and, and you're right it, it does uh, it, it is kind of weird and I've tried to figure that out because it's common uh especially when you're living and, and working with other you know famous people or semi hemi demi famous people and you go oh you were roommates with Apatow, like you know, like blah blah. Because I'm looking at your couch right now behind you, like I yeah. want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I want. Because show business is worldwide, it's assumed that everything is worldwide within show business. No, it's a little town. Hollywood is like a little village of famous people, and they all congregate together and they know one another because they're weird on the outside. <laughs> I mean, you are. I'm weird. On you know, if I go to some like India, I'm famous in India. Why? Because I'm in Friends. Friends is an amazingly huge, you know, mega mega hit in India, and I'm on it. So now, if I go to if I go to India, I, I, I'll probably I, I'm guessing you know be really I'll be swarmed, but. That doesn't make me feel cool. It you feel threatened and, and weird. So I tend to hang around with other actors, you know, and musicians. I love musicians. They're cool. Yeah, musicians are actors' best friends. A lot yeah. of people don't know that. Yes. Well, I, I think because musicians want to be actors and actors want to be musicians. This is true. You know, they're, 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 I hear that all the time, you know. You know, speaking of musicians and actors being drawn to each other, uh, we have a great musician to highlight in this episode. His name is Julian Villard. He's a singer, songwriter, and composer, and he also does some comedy. So much like Joe and Larry here, he's a fixture in both the comedy and the music scenes. He, he actually has a cult following in the UK and the Netherlands. He's toured as an opening act for Jamie Collum, Gold Frapp, and he's performed with comedians like Will Ferrell, and Jack McBrayer and Paul Shear. And he also wrote a song that was featured as the theme song. You're going to like this, Joe. The theme song for Aldi supermarkets called Everyday Amazing. He's writing musicals, performing. He's he's done Howard Stern. This guy has way too much going on. So check him out. Busy, man. I like that. I thought I'd be young forever. Can't believe I'm 40 years old. My life should have been a big hit, but not enough tickets were sold. I was searching for something great, but the trail's gone cold. Had the world in my hands, but it was just too hard to hold. Manhattan was mine for the taking when I was in my 
rock and roll star in the making out of family man living in Queens. Still singing my songs in bars, but I'm running out of steam. So much has changed, but I still have the same dream. This is considered our Hollywood episode. And and when you're talking about Hollywood, you're talking about looking good, feeling good. That means eating and taking care of your body. So now it's time to talk about our snacks, sips, and sweets for this episode, Fresh Prep LLC. What they do is they put awesome meals together that coincide with your workout plan. And they, uh, they're also trainers, physical trainers, and personal trainers. And they do it up with the food with their workout regimens. I mean, my goodness, Dewan Widner and Joanne L. Franklin together, you should see these two like chocolate rocks. They are seriously fit. I've known Joanne L. Franklin for a long time and she is committed, absolutely committed. Just had a chance to get acquainted with Dewan Widner and this man is all about it. His passion is to put you in a position to do more, be more, and reach your full potential with your food intake and with your body. And these guys are really putting it together. Their mission is to serve, educate, and feed the community with fresh quality produce, meats, and fruits. Fresh Prep LLC is committed to serving fresh quality food to people of all ages, from young children to older adults, while including dietary restrictions when needed. So when they say we at Fresh Prep guarantee results and ensure great customer service. And in regards to their personal training, <laughs> I love this. Eat clean, train dirty because they lead by example. And I am a true, true supporter of this and their cause. And can we talk about the food? Unfortunately, during COVID, I've gotten really accustomed to eating crap and especially like ordering out a lot. You would have thought that this, you know, he had just made this for me right here at the table because it was the chicken was delicious. Everything was fantastic. It fell off the bone. I had the cauliflower mash. It was delicious. And a uh, half a sweet potato with the rotisserie chicken. It didn't taste like health food. You know, it was healthy. It tasted clean, but it also tasted delicious. And I'll eat as much of this as I can to turn into a chocolate wrap. Oh, my God. Like, honestly, <laughs> it's one thing when they can do it and it's in shakes and it's gross. This was freaking good. Yes. Yo. And it was filling, and it didn't seem like that much, but I'm like, holy shit, I just eat probably the healthiest meal <laughs> I've had in months. Seriously, I had the uh, the salmon with the mashed potatoes, the red mashed potatoes. Oh, my goodness, and the, uh, and, and the black beans. This is where it's at, folks. And, and, and again, I truly believe in what they're doing, and they will help you transform your food intake and your body. You want to get your sexy on, they can help you do that and get your full on. Yeah, right. I'm already feeling trimmer. <laughs> yeah, the food was awesome and definitely check them out. We will put some tags at the end of the episode here as well as online. But uh, for right now, we're talking with Larry Hankin, our veteran actor and Oscar nominee. Um, Larry, you were saying that you and Carl Gottlieb, the writer of Jaws, were living together after college and you guys were barely scraping by while you were personally trying your hand at stand-up comedy. So we just, you know, it was kind of dicey for a while. Uh, but then I, uh, I, I started doing well and then I was opening for, you know, Woody Allen and Miles Davis and, uh, Kingston Trio and the Playboy Circuit. And I was doing really cool. Oh, yes. And then 
I started to get into uh, critical thinking comedy. Uh, starting into Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce territory and George Carlin. But yeah, I was getting into critical thinking where people would come at me with beer bottles upside down in their fists saying, get the fuck off the stage. So I would get the fuck off the stage. I mean, <laughs> and then the, the cops started pulling me off the stage. So. You said the cops started pulling you off the stage? Oh, yeah, like phalanxes. Like I had uh, 20 cops pull me off the stage uh, in uh, Washington University in uh, St. Louis. Why? I was doing my act. For, I was opening for the Love and Spoonful. So it was an arena, you know, big. And um, I thought, you know, it's a college crowd. So, you know, I, I use my best stuff. Yeah. So I was going along fine, you know, the clean stuff, the ordinary stuff, you know, and then you get, you know, better and better. And then the big laughs at the end. So I was getting into that. And then I, I had this little thing where I had this microphone, uh, you know, stand up microphone. And I would take this. I was I would say, OK, now we're going to talk about religion. And all of a sudden it's quiet. <laughs> and I said, OK, so, uh, oh, I'm, I'm God. And here's a little. OK, I made a little man. How you doing? And I put him on the top of the microphone. I go, okay, so yeah, you you don't have any clothes on. That's really weird. I guess. Well, that's what I did. And uh, <laughs> what's that between your legs there? And all of a sudden, man, I started, boo, boo. We don't want to hear that. We we don't want to hear that. Wow. And, I, and but I I ignored them, so I kept on going into the bit, which you know was like a, a little more risque and a little more risque, and then it got dirty. It was the early '60s. It didn't matter. You were either clean or, as I was called, a filthy, dirty-mouthed comedian. <laughs> but still, the college crowd, you would think that the college crowd would be all about that. I yelled back at them. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you I like did. this? I said, I, I, I go, you know, so I stopped because but what they were doing was, you know, it was an arena, it was an auditorium. They were pulling those wooden uh, armrests off the seats. You know, if you push them forward, they come off, you know, <laughs> like that. They were throwing them at me. <laughs> Not bottles, but these wooden uh, armrests. They were throwing them, and I'm dodging. And I, so I go, okay, okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. So they stopped. So I said, okay, okay, I'll stop. And I go, what, what's going on here? This is a college crowd. I thought, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What the hell's wrong with you people? And they would, they they shut up. They stop booing. They stop throwing. And okay, you're quiet. Fine, thank you. And then I went on with the bit. <laughs> so now they were out of these uh, armrests because only the first or second row. It was too far for the third and the fourth row. To right, throw the educated up. crowd doesn't have a good arm. So uh, so then when I got a really big laugh on something, I said, okay, so now. Okay, so what the hell is between your legs? <laughs> Berserk. And then, out of nowhere, I mean, just I, I had gotten just those words out of my mouth, and they go, boo, 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 boo. I see a phalanx, a literal phalanx, of 10 cops on each wall aisle march down. The dean had called the cops the first time I had done it. So I was 10 minutes into clean stuff and the cops had showed up and they were waiting back there for me to, you know, like this, you know, how cops do stand there like this in the back. And they were waiting for me to get dirty. And when I did, boom, they started marching down up on the stage. And that is what I would call 
falling into acting, I go, I called my agent and I go, Hey man, I can't, you know, they're coming at me with beer bottles, man. I got <laughs> cops, you know, and that wasn't the, wasn't the first time with cops, but that was the first time I had 20. So um, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And he said, well, why don't you join second city? You know, they're doing Lenny stuff and, and Carlin stuff and prior stuff, but they own the theater. So join second city. So that's what I did. So getting into the audition aspect and LeJohn and Joe can talk a little bit to this as well. Um, I'm usually on the other side of the audition, you know, as the producer, but it, um, you know, you said something to me on the phone the other day, Larry, which was essentially, it's a demeaning process in the fact that they kind of, it's almost like a beauty pageant. They walk you around, they make you do a couple of twirls, you know, show us what skills or talents you have. And then Uh, every once in a while, that's not the case, but it's rare. The, The famous big hitter directors and producers they're cool. You know, I'll audition for them any day because they're human beings, you know, it's like I auditioned for John Houston. I mean, I'll audition for that guy forever. Even if I never get the part, I'll still go. He's a great guy. You just want to be around him. I mean, he's, you know, hi, Larry, how you doing? You know, you want to do this part? Uh, you, you, you have to get a haircut. You know, it's Annie. The cops are coming. <laughs> <laughs> we took all the armrests off all the chairs in the room. You're in good shape. <laughs> oh, and then he goes and he sticks up for you. That's the other thing that great directors do. You know, some of the, the, uh, the casting director got behind me when I was walking into the, uh, he, was on, he was on set. She got behind me and she put her hands on the shoulders and she was steering me from behind in front of him. And he goes, and he's just, you know, this kind old gentleman with white hair. And he goes, what are you doing? He's incredulous. He goes, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm putting him, I'm placing him in front of you so you can see him better. And he goes, don't touch my actors. <laughs> so I thought, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really great. And then later on when he said, no, uh, and he was talking to me just like a person, you know, like, hey, Larry, you know, you're going to have to get a haircut for this. Uh, do you mind getting a haircut? Because I was a hippie and I had my hair down to here. So he said, do you mind getting a haircut? And she gets behind me and she takes my hair and she, you know, pulls it up like a ponytail to you know, get it out of the way. And he goes, now what are you doing? She says, uh, I'm taking his hair away from his face so you can tell what he looks like with a haircut. And he says, I'm a director. I have imagination. <laughs> Don't touch my actors. I mean, that's a, you know, I want to work for this guy. This guy's cool. Other than that, it's a demeaning process is the point to that story. (laughs) When I first talked to you, one of the things that I I had mentioned to you was it's funny because the outside looking in, a lot of people think of you and I'm sure you get it all the time. They put you in a box. It's like, oh, you're Mr. Heckles or oh, you're this guy or this guy. But at the same time, they don't realize all of the hours and days and months and years of work that it takes. to You left out bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> and bullshit. Well, I'm going to let you add in the bullshit okay. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, that it takes to even get there. And so you said, I don't know if you want to reshare this, but you had mentioned like you had kind of like three, <laughs> three tips or three pieces of advice you'd give to upcoming actors or people who wanted to make it in the business. Oh, that. <laughs> well, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, number one, 
If you want to be an actor, forget it. <laughs> okay. Two, if you do want to be an actor, you've been warned. Three, if you want to be an actor, start your own production company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah create, well, create your own and table. You, and you left, one, you left one small part out of number one, which was forget it. And also, we have enough of you out here. We're good. <laughs> yeah, well, I, those are the <laughs> Thank you. But yes, that was, the, that was part of it. No, but it's true because, I mean, so, I mean, LeJohn and Joe, you guys are actors, and it's not that you have these, you know, pie-in-the-sky dreams. You're realistic about it. But a lot of people are like, they only see it for the after party or the big screen debuts. They yeah, don't yeah. think about yeah. the bullshit. No. Well, not only- To quote Larry, the bullshit yeah. that goes into it. Yeah, and I got I to gotta admit one thing against myself. <laughs> I am a dyslexic. So I have dyslexia. So a lot of time, because of dyslexia, I misunderstand what's going on. Because dyslexia, in my, in, in my mind anyway, I mean, dyslexia is, is different for different people. It, it has different effects on, you, on your brain. But in, in my mind, uh, I, I don't misunderstand. I understand kind of too well. In other words, if you tell me something, I, I have two interpretations of what you're telling me to do. And I just, so I have a 50-50 shot at getting it right. <laughs> That's better than most. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But in my case, uh, when you're in the middle of a movie and, and you get it wrong, I mean, there are ramifications. You know, people get pissed off. You know, they, they short fuses. So that adds to my not liking or, 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 or saying that making movies is bullshit because I misunderstand a lot of things. So I get blowback, you know, like, like, you know, boo, get off the stage. I don't know what, why this is sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> I think the other thing that is kind of the demeaning part of it too is, um, well, I guess less so for, for, you know, successful actors like yourself, but constant rejection. I mean, how much rejection can one person take? And it's not like you're rejecting me as a salesperson. You don't want to buy this car or whatever. It is, you're rejecting me. me. Yeah. yeah. You have to, I had to make an, an adjustment a priori to, to, to all the rejection. I mean, you have to have a thick skin. I mean, look, when I was, uh, I, I already had a thick skin. I was a stand-up comedian. You get booed in the beginning. What do you think? I just came out, you know, for, uh, <laughs> Carl, let's go to Greenwich Village, got up on the stage and opened for Woody Allen. I mean, you know, being funny among your friends or with, say, with you guys and girls uh, is different than getting on a stage and getting paid and, and having, you know, people paying a, a cover and a minimum. Hey, that, that ain't the same. But I thought it was the same. Yeah, hey man, I mean, make my friends laugh, so I'm funny. <laughs> so, uh, speaking about rejection, is there any rejection in the acting and auditioning world that that sticks out to you? Is there anything where somebody said something that maybe cut you a little bit deeper than you had thought, or you're like, "What the hell?" It only happened once, and so I, that's why I remember it. Long, long time ago, when I was in the beginning, but um, I auditioned for a serious part. It was a part for some sort of injured person. Uh, I think sometimes a brain damage or something. I don't know. But anyway, I just went full out brain damaged on them. Uh, and they just stood. I, I, 
you know, I could see them, you know, and they were just, whoa. When method. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were just, I don't know about this. Mm. Uh, and uh, when I finished, you know, they said, well, thank you. And they were just like, so you can tell. It was like a bad um, uh, set of, of comedy where, you know, silence for the whole thing and then you get off the stage and nobody even would clap. You killed it for the next act. That's, how- <laughs> That's what you did. So I, I, I stopped being method after that. So we still want to talk about the good and we've, we've covered some of it. What are some of the most memorable experiences? You talk about working with John Houston. What were some other like memorable experiences you've had uh, in like the good part of it? Well, let me see. The, well, working with great, great directors who, who are, or at least I thought, uh, was, oh, yeah, working with uh, Clint Eastwood and uh, uh, Don Siegel was just uh, the whole thing. Because great directors, among other things, I don't even think they really know this, but they're teachers. And I don't think they're trying to teach you something, but that, that's how it comes out. I learned stuff from great directors, just to how to comport myself, how to act, how uh, – you know, like, like for instance, uh, Don Siegel, the same attitude that John Houston had. He would talk to me like a person, like he was a person and I was a person, and we are just hanging out together. And he would do that with everybody. That they're, they're human beings, but they're also great teachers. And I would always stand next to him, you know, see you know, how to direct and what, where he put in the camera. And then I would go, uh, like one day I say, why, why are you – I don't understand why you, you're putting the camera here. The the action is, you know, I don't think you're getting the action. Why are you putting it here? And he says, I don't know. I'll probably get fired. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing cards with the crew because I wasn't up for two hours. They, there's somebody behind me. So I look behind and it's Don Siegel and he's standing there very stern. And he's saying, what are you doing, Larry? You know, you, know, you got a scene today. I said, yeah, but it's not for two hours. It's an important scene. You know that, don't you? Well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you got to cry in that scene. It's my crying scene. It's right before they they go over, they, they escape. It's, you know, and we're all. Spoiler so alert. Cry. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. For, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. We didn't escape. We didn't escape. <laughs> he says, you know, uh, it's an important scene. Uh, you got to be crying in that scene. You know that, don't you? Oh, no, I didn't know I had to cry. Yeah, you got to cry in that scene. Well, I mean, can you cry? <laughs> I, I don't know. I do. Well, I mean, I think you should know if you could cry or not. I need you to cry in that scene. Now, the, the crew is like sitting there with that, oh, my God, what's going on here? And he says, and I said, well, I don't know. He says, look, Larry. And he, looked, he says, you got two hours. Now, I, if you can't cry, what I would suggest you do is you go into your dressing room and slap yourself around until you can cry because <laughs> I need you to cry. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. So I'm trying to not come and I'm slapping myself. Boom, boom, nothing. So I, I finally, I, I figured out how to do it. And I figured out, I got an out. So I go looking for Don Siegel. Where's Don Siegel? Where's Don Siegel? There he is. Oh, Don, can I talk to you for a second? Oh, yeah, fine. What, what is it? And he takes me aside. Cool. I said, what is it? He goes, look, um, I see, uh, I did a backstory for Charlie Butts. And one of the things uh, I figured out, Charlie Butts in this scene wouldn't cry. He's not that type of guy. And he says, Carol, 
would you tell me what the fuck he's talking about? <laughs> and he goes, he looks at me, he says, look, Larry, we got a, we got a scene here. We got a scene. We got a, we got a movie here. I got a movie here and it's just all testosterone. It's 200 guys in, in Alcatraz. All they want to do is kill people or fight or get the hell out of there. It's a testosterone movie. I need some other emotion besides anger. You're going to cry in that scene because I need some other emotion. You got that? I go, yeah. She says, okay, thank you. So I'm trying to slap myself. I'm trying everything. Two hours are up. AD comes and says, you're up. I go, oh, all right, fine. I'm going to be fired. That's my go-to uh, mode. Is I'm going to be fired. I get zen. And now it's just a dance until I get to be fired. So I'm, 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 in other words, I've calmed myself out. I am now already fired. I just have to go walk through it. And I go to the <laughs> set and he sets me up and he says, this is going to be a close-up, Larry. This is going to be really good. He says, you ready, Larry? I go, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Because I've been fired. So I'm, I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> he says, okay, and action, Larry. And I go, I'm going, it's not, it's not happening. Yes. Says, right, cut, cut, cut. All right, Harry, bring it in. A guy, a crew guy, big crew guy comes in with a perfume bottle. And he just sticks it in between me and the camera. And he goes, <laughs> and tears start falling down my face. And, and Don goes, roll it. <laughs> Cut. Larry, that was magnificent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I go up to, to Harry and I, what the hell is in that bottle? He says, it's wintergreen. We do it all the time. It makes, it makes actors cry. Wintergreen. Don Siegel knew at the card table what was going to happen. And and you said the best directors to you were like teachers, but I think it's also because you may have had your antennas up as a student because it sounds like part of your passion was always to maybe be a director as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the directors knew that. At least Don Siegel knew that. I mean, I was always standing next to him. I was always asking him questions. It was kind of obvious, you know. Hey, how do you do that? Or why, why this, you know? Uh, but I mean, that, that, to me, that makes him great. Uh, you know, it's just, and also he made a great movie. I mean, <laughs> if the movie was a flop, I don't know if I'd be talking like this. Like, fuck that guy. I could have yeah. been playing cards. <laughs> right. <laughs> but on the yeah, set, he was, yeah, both of them. I mean, uh, John Hughes in another way was uh, a genius director, but he was the opposite. He was awful. Uh, I mean, not not all. He, he was hard to communicate with. He was he's very close. He's very close. But again, he was a teacher. I mean, when he did say something, it was important. You know, I mean, it, it was something you could take to heart. It seems like a lot of the people who are like at the top of their game are respectful to other people and their time. And then the people who are kind of like in the middle and like want to think that they're at the top, like to try to like shit on the people at the bottom. Right. And that's kind of where I feel like the dehumanizing aspect. Yeah, I, I don't know the reason for it, but I know it, it it breaks down that way. Yeah. What about some of your uh, other good roles? Did you did you enjoy doing any of the TV stints like Friends or Seinfeld or Breaking well, Bad? I enjoyed doing them because they were easy. I, I didn't have many lines to memorize. The dyslexia interrupts my ability to learn lines. I, I've always learned the lines, but it takes me years, man. I mean, like really a long time to memorize lines. But in sitcoms, I always had very small lines. 
you know, yeah, because it's just back and forth. There is no long speeches and soliloquies and sitcoms. Did like working with Second City and doing improv help you with that stuff? No, they wouldn't let me improvise in the beginning. After you get some chops and you're well known, now I can make changes. I can oh, say, okay. can I say this instead of that? But in the beginning, no, I would go up and say, can I say this or can I improvise? No, what are you kidding? I mean, it was like, <laughs> like I was cursing or something. We're an improv <laughs> theater. Odd. We only do scripts. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I, I think my character would do this set about a mic and a little guy with a dick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think Mr. Heckles would do that. Come on. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you picked out the right show. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, oh, man. No, I was, I was persona non grata on Friends. I mean, my character was loved by all, but nobody liked Larry Hankin. Whoa, man. I was a troublemaker there. I just didn't. I just wouldn't fit in. I heard you were really pissed off when you found that they were killing them off. Yeah, that that was one of the reasons. But but in other words, I had an attitude. I still do, but I just I'm able to control it a little better. But <laughs> but back then, I had an attitude. Period. Uh, <laughs> and so it was all through the shoot. You know, I I did five shows. I guess they were just fed up with me, and I sensed it. They said, "This is your last show, Larry," and I said. What do you mean? Why? They said, well, the, sh the script they're writing, <laughs> yeah, you die in it. Because then Chandler took over my apartment. So when I heard that uh, I was going to die in this show, um, I really uh, hollered at the producers in front of 140 people. Larry, how could uh, you? Which is a no-no. You shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> After I finished Howl, why did you kill my character? What the hell is going on? Wait, are, are you in costume at this point too? Are you wearing like the dirty bathrobe and stuff? No, I, and I didn't know this coming in onto the lot and parking my car and going to what I thought was the set. And when I went to the set, there was nobody there. And I what happened? You know, they said, no, they're having an opening, uh, an opening season party upstairs before they rehearse. So when I went upstairs, there was this big, there was about, you know, 20 of them in this big room and everybody was standing around and they had the guests from other shows and producers from other shows. And they were all, it was in the openings of this new season. And I walked in and everybody was there. I was, I was kind of, you know, five minutes late. So everybody had, you know, gone to eat the food and they had the drinks in their hands. Larry's in the corner balling up uh, cocktail shrimp and a napkin, yeah, yeah, yeah. shoving it in his pockets. <laughs> so I walked over to the producers I saw them. They were all at one table together. So I thought, ah, I can nail them. So I just walked up to them. And they were very, you know, oh, hi, Larry, new season. And I go, what the hell did you do? What are you talking about? You killed my character. Why did you do that? And I just go in full blast. And and the one of the, the, the female producers, and she just said, just like that, she goes, Larry, can we talk about this a little later? And it just brought me right down. It just snapped me into reality. And I realized, what did I just do? And I looked around and the room is quiet. Everybody's just looking at us. <laughs> Excuse me. And I walked to the craft table. And as I'm walking to the craft services table, everybody at the craft services table just split. <laughs> so I'm just standing there going, now what do I do, man? Now, this is crazy. I just, I, just, I just went nuts. I just lost it. 
I'm thinking, what should I do? And this kid, about 15, maybe the son of one of the producers or one of the actors or something like that, he walks up to me, <laughs> the brave one. He walks up to me and he goes, dude, that was so cool. <laughs> I just, now, they're doing a, a reunion and they just called me and they said they wanted me there. So I guess I've been forgiven. Oh, you got to make that happen. Oh, yeah. yeah well, you can be the ghost of Mr. Heckles or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to ask a selfish question. Um a selfish question and comment here because, and I hate to go back to Alcatraz and everything. It was my biggest brother, his favorite movie growing up. He showed it to me all the time when I was like, I swear to God, like six, seven, eight years old and going up and everything. So like, I've seen I'm too it. young to see this. <laughs> now, also, I got to ask you, Larry, in your personal opinion, do you think those guys, because I know there was like a letter that was found or something like that in 2013, but Frank Morris and everybody else, do you think those guys ever made it? No. No. That was the only thing that was being discussed on the set for three months. Yeah, you know, I bet. I bet. Every day, somebody would think, have another theory. But or because we were there for three months, we collected a lot of information. Yeah. And it all pointed to the fact that there was no way. The the biggest one, that if, if they went at the time that they were supposed to go, which they did, they would have been swept out to sea. That's, that current is real strong under the bridge. And so if you launch during that outgoing tide, you're just going to go. Two, a, a freighter was going outbound at that time. And on the way out, they saw a body floating in the water with a blue shirt on. It wasn't recovered because they couldn't stop. But they said they, they saw a body in the water, a blue shirt. That's what they were wearing, a blue shirt. Uh, on a beach... Uh, they found the raft uh, exploded. So the glue didn't hold on the on the raft that they built. Unreal. So, Larry, you, you and I talked a little bit about now you're at a point in your career, as you say, uh, where you're finally getting to do the things you want to do, the things you're passionate yeah. about, which is writing and producing and telling your own stories. And I started writing a screenplay a year and a half ago. So I was writing before COVID hit, but I was sequestered because I was writing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an instant gratification kind of person. I want to finish it. So I'll stay there until, you know, so I would just be going out for, for food or, you know, if a friend called, I would meet him for coffee just for a second because I got to get back and write. Uh, so I wanted to finish it. But it started to get into the sequestered because of COVID. And I was thinking, wow, this works out great. Now I don't have to explain why I'm only at home you know, writing. It, it helps me just stay here. Great. And then uh, I finished that one and it was still COVID. So I started another one because I was being sequestered. And I just finished that two weeks ago. So I'm fresh, you know, just coming out of, you know, this writing binge of a year and a half. You you said you were maybe getting back into stand-up a little bit? Well, that's what I want to do, but there's no stages open now. Right. You know, even the the, the real heavy hitter stand-ups are... Uh, are not working now. You know, they're all doing HBO specials Well, by phone. I don't even know. I don't know how they do HBO specials for comedy. It's an audience full of people without masks. The guy on stage is like, I don't know how they do that. I'm, I got gray hair. I, I'm paranoid. I, you know, it's crazy outside. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> you were mentioning a, uh, a project where maybe compiling like some audio together to, to, I know. Uh, well, what I'm doing is, you know, like the, the, the show business stories that I kind of told you guys, you know, the, 
I have a whole career, 182 shows that where bizarre things happen because of me, because of the dyslexia, because of the director, because of the part, because of whatever's going on. I have these stories. So I've been, um, I've been recording them uh, an hour a week for the last uh, three months. I record them with this recording studio in New Jersey. So we have now about eight hours of show business stories. Then now they're getting into my childhood and stuff like that and grow how I got into show business. Are you sure this isn't therapy? Because it sounds a lot like therapy. <laughs> Are you laying down on a couch when they ask you questions about your childhood? It's exactly what it is. You're exactly right. <laughs> oh, shit. That is my picture of what I'm doing. It's a cheap way of monetizing what's inside my head. Well, and the stories are so cool because it'd be one thing if you'd only been doing this for, let's say, the last decade. I mean, you've been in the business for so long and you've worked with some of these guys who aren't around anymore, like Don Siegel. You've worked with some really high profile guys, some really talented people, which is awesome. You've worked with and screamed at the best of them in Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like you said, you are uh, you're famous worldwide because of friends. Do you know how many people learned English by watching Friends? I've talked about it on oh, this podcast before. why? Yes. I mean, you know, no, I'm, I'm serious. That That's, they learn from Friends. Yeah. That's why when an Indian telemarketer calls you, they're like, could you be any more disrespectful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of um, requests from people from India in Cameo. It's only females who are between 12 and uh, 18 and then from 30 to 50 and females only females rarely maybe one percent are males uh the only males who do it are my girlfriend loves friends would you send her a (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the reason is because of those two things is the young girls and then their mothers who watch the original release are watching it with their daughters. Oh. But it only revolves around females, the reason for the cameo. Before we wrap it up here, I, I do have to make a confession. My my favorite character of yours, and I don't know why, was Billy Madison. I freaking loved you as Carl. Oh Jesus Christ. When when you do when you impersonate the other guy in his laugh and like the weasel yeah. laugh. See, now that, that's why I went, oh, Jesus. I hate that laugh. I was coerced into that laugh. I assume that. And when I did it, I hated myself. I used to do that in, in high school. In high school. I've never done it since then. And uh, Adam Sandler came up to me in the middle of that shoot. And he said, hey, I heard you do this, this funny laugh. And I said, oh, yeah, I did that in high school. I don't do that anymore. I hate it. It's stupid. And he said, do it for me. If, if I do it for you right now, will you just leave me alone and let me get back to my lunch? Because I was sitting at another table. He'd call. I, I said, okay, I'll do it. So I did it. And he goes, yeah. And then the people at the, at the table laughed. And he laughed. And he said, yeah, see, that, that that's funny. I told you it was funny. I said, I don't care. I hate it. And I just laughed. <laughs> okay, that afternoon we shot that scene. And in the middle of the scene on the first take, out of nowhere, while we're doing the scene and the camera is rolling, he turned to me and he goes, hey, Larry, why don't you do that laugh for my girlfriend here? And me being a 10 year improviser in Second City in the committee, it just snapped into my head, you know, do the laugh. And I just did it on camera, just instinctively. And I hated myself 
And the scene went on. And then Adam said, cut. And then he walked away and he said, moving on. Let's get out of God here. God damn it, Adam. So wow. I was nailed and I hated that scene. I, I can't watch the movie. I just can't. It's just me. It has nothing to do with. I, no, trust me. They I, come I, up to me. Hey, do that laugh. You know, when I sign autographs and stuff. Hey, do that laugh. Do that laugh. Sorry, doctor's orders can't do it. <laughs> Ever since I took an, uh, an armrest to the neck uh, back in the 60s, can't do that shit anymore. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your stories. Thank you, guys and girl. girls. No, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any last, I guess, thoughts? Anybody who's passionate, artistic, creative, what do you suggest? Don't listen to anybody. Do it. Sir, it's been a pleasure. You, uh, thank you very much. You guys are great. We, we, yeah, we love you. I'm gonna go home and watch Billy Masson over and over on rerun, but <laughs> but we'll dub it over with a uh, a good laugh right, that yeah. you're proud right. of. Well, you, we'll use my laugh. <laughs> so yeah, you know, so Larry's talking about essentially. It's like I did all these things that I think a lot of actors would go, "Holy shit, that's my dream." And he's going, I don't want to do this. You know, as he as he told me before, he's like, it, was, it just interested me. I, I, I'm curious, so I would think, I wonder what this guy's going to say, or I wonder what this experience might be like. And it's so funny, because like I said, people are looking at him, I'm sure, going, oh my God, I would give my left arm to be in your position. Uh, I guess it's all about context and something that, LeJohn, you're really good at, and I am horrible at, which is appreciating what you got while you've got it. Oh, yes. Yes, that's so important, man, to be able to live in that moment and understand that, you know what, this is pretty good where it's at. And I and I got to put myself in a mental space that, man, it could the, the alternatives, I guess, you know, the the um thinking about the alternatives of where you are and what you're doing and what you could be doing otherwise. You have to be able to bring something you love into your work that you're paid for, I think, in order to stay sane, either that or smoke a lot of really good stuff. Speaking of smoking good stuff, Joe. What's up? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. So you get these casting notices that are like non-union, not that great. But one of them was like 50 bucks to go to this place in Williamsburg and just act out a couple things on camera. And so I do it. And it wasn't porn. It's all fine, right? I'm just like, do some funny stuff. And uh, they're like, oh, pretend you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, now pretend that you're giving yourself um, – you you work for yourself and you are uh, giving yourself – an evaluation, like this, that, and the other. So I do those things. They're like, great, thanks so much, 50 bucks. Okay. Then like a year later, I walk into an audition and these people are like, oh my goodness, you're the Arnold Schwarzenegger girl. Oh my goodness, oh. And then they bring people in the office. They're like, you are famous in our office. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, Joe, we love you. You are a big deal in our office. You wrote our international ad campaign for Avon. I'm like, what? what? And then they show me this video of me doing all this stuff when I got like 50 bucks for it. And I was like, oh, cool. Thinking, I fucking wrote their ad campaign like, and I got $50. And I was like, well, do you, could I have the video maybe for you know, my reel? Like, oh, well, it's internal. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. All right. Um, and then I do this audition and uh, then later they, they put me on the short list for it. And then they're like, oh, we cast someone else. <laughs> yeah. You re- you've you been replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. So I that felt like I was exploited a little bit and I made a mistake. But I needed that 50 bucks at the time, too. Okay. So for the people who aren't in 
this business and especially who aren't actors. For example, I have friends who like they show up in some of these shows and you're thinking, oh man, like their career is really budding. And I'm not saying that it's not doing anything, but then you like find out they were paid like 200 bucks. They weren't willing to give them a per diem. Hollywood seems glamorous because we watch the red carpet shows, because we see the after parties with the celebrities. That's just not really how things are. And even actors who, you know, you always see online, like the clickbait, what happened to so-and-so? It's like, you might have a great career for a decade or so, and then all of a sudden, you're not what they're looking for. Well, and especially, I think that right now, there's just so little union work that if you're union, you have a hard time getting cast. And if you're non-union, they can nickel and dime you so you don't get any money. It's really not, it's turning into a less sustainable career than it was back in the day when uh, Larry was talking about making 1500 to 5000 per show. I was like, damn, I yeah. love to five grand yeah, for that. Because I, I see stuff in there like, it's a thousand minus your agency fee. Yeah, that's the perception, man. The perception is we see, we saw that commercial. Oh my goodness! Oh my god, you in that film and everything, and you know uh, the lifetime stuff. And it's like, yeah, I did that. Can I borrow some money? Let's end with some advice. How about that? Here's my advice to people who are in music or production or actors. Do it because you love it. Yeah. I mean, people chase the dragon for a reason, right? Because that dragon just is so good. <laughs> Joe's been chasing that high since second grade. Yeah. But she was in the play. <laughs> Look, seriously. It's true. Also, you better fall in love, again, with the process of doing it. It's work. It's work. It's serious work, man. And and uh, the days, there, there are some dark days. I know I've had them. Some dark days, some dark weeks, for that matter. For real. But yeah, you if you enjoy like the blood, the sweat, the tears that go into the work, I think the fame and the praise and all of the good stuff will come. Thank you once again to the multi-talented Julian Villard. You can check his music out at Julian Villard. That's V-E-L-A-R-D dot com. His event company is Julian Villard Presents dot com. And his piano bar that he that he runs is uh, SidGolds.com. S-I-D-Golds.com. Check him out. Yes, indeed. And also, we want to definitely thank Fresh Prep. That's Fresh with two S's. L-L-C. Dewan Widner, Joy Franklin, at Fresh Start Athletics on Instagram and Facebook. Once again, Fresh with two S's. Um, and when you do that, when you reach out to them, ask about the meal prep because that's where it's at, man. And you can contact them at 216-213-3846. Fresh Start Athletics. An adventure I can't repeat. An episode I can't rerun. I'm half done. We just went there. Now you can go to Instagram at the Going There Podcast, Facebook at Going There Podcast, or email us at goingtherepodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible by its hosts and Frame One Media in association with Lindsay Baker, Tyler Kubisti, Michael Madgar, Joe Callie, and Bobby Thomas. Bye.